Renowned preacher and Episcopalian priest, Barbara Brown Taylor, began a sermon on this passage with a rather challenging story. Taylor explains that several years ago, there was a woman that she knows walking out of her church after a particularly inspiring Sunday morning service. And as she left, she ran into a thin man that was looking sort of lost in the parking lot. She thought she would just pass by this man and proceed to her car, but the man stopped her. The man said, excuse me, miss, as he gestured up towards the church that she'd just come out of. And he said, what exactly, tell me, what exactly do you people believe in there? The woman started to answer, but she quickly realized that despite her wonderful morning experience, she didn't really have the words to speak. She thought that she would have known what to say, but she realized that the words just wouldn't come out of her mouth. What do we believe in there? It was her turn to look a little lost, and the man sensed her discomfort, and he said, never mind, I'm sorry I bothered you, and he continued to walk along. This man had bothered the woman, but it wasn't the man himself or even his disheveled look, it was the question. And it was her own inability to answer this simple question. I won't ask for a show of hands, but if you think about this story for a moment, does it make you a little uncomfortable? Does it bother you? Do you know exactly what you would say to a man in a parking lot? I'll admit that I don't know that I would readily have a really good answer. I could mention some kind of creed I could talk about the Wesleyan theology that we talk about here. I could say something like, Jesus is Lord and Savior. But Barbara Brown Taylor says, what does that mean to a guy in a parking lot? Does that mean that despite all of the appearances to the contrary, that this world is actually in good hands? Imagine that somebody asks you this same question, but the man that's asking it this time is Jesus. Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? In our story, Jesus brings these disciples to a particular place, and he asks these particular questions. I want to talk a little bit about the place first. The place was Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi had quite an amazing history and geography. The city was built right at the foot of Mount Hermon. It's about 25 miles to the north of the Sea of Galilee. Up on the wall behind me, you see one of the most remarkable features of it. This is actually three different panels. This one zooms in on a cave right here. In the middle, you see kind of a zoom out. This same cave on the left side is this cave over here. And the view on this side is kind of a view across from the cave. This cave that's over here on the left side used to, ho- uh, used to be home for a spring. The waters flowed very much, very powerfully out from this cave. There was unfortunately, though, an earthquake about 100 or 200 years ago that caused part of the cave to collapse. And the spring now comes out from below this. 
The spring that comes from here flows into a place or becomes a river that we call Banyas. And Banyas joins two other rivers to become the Jordan River. So this is one of the primary sources of the Jordan River. Because of its beauty and because of the depth of this cave, the terrace that you see under this cliff was long thought to be holy. It was long thought to hold sacred significance. When the Sedei was settled about 300 years before Jesus' time, the spring was linked to a pagan god named Pan. Pan was a half-goat, half-man, god of fertility, god of the shepherds, and god of the flocks. And the city would first become known as Banyas, named after this god Pan. This terrace would become the home of all of the Greek and Roman gods in this area. By the time that Jesus brought his disciples to this place, this terrace would have been full of temples that no longer stand today. Just in front of that cave, there was a temple to the Caesar, a temple to Caesar Augustus. And over just to the left or to the right of it, to the east, would have been the temple and the court of that god Pan. And just a little bit further than that, there would have been a temple to Zeus. And beyond that, there would have been more and more temples. This place was full of temples. In the first century, Herod Philip came into this place and decided to make this place his capital. And he decided to change the name from Panyas to Caesarea Philippi. He wanted to honor the emperor, so he named it Caesarea. He also wanted to honor himself, and so he added Philippi. Still a little bit later, this place would be called Neronius in honor of the emperor Nero. By the time that Matthew wrote this gospel, several of the Roman emperors had actually called this place home, at least for a short time, as they marched through Israel, putting down the Jewish revolts. In fact, after the Jewish wars were over, Titus came to this place with 2,500 Jewish captives and decided to have them all kill each other for sport. This was a place dominated by strange stories, strange practices, and violence. While Jesus and his disciples, when they came to this place, would not have known of that violence that was to come just a couple of decades later, Matthew, who writes the gospel, knows of it. And probably people from Matthew's community had walked by this place as they got to Antioch where they found refuge from the war. This war and slaughter was yet to come in Jesus' time, but this still was a place of pagan worship. It was a place that was dedicated to the empire and to the emperor, and it was a place that was dominated by power, by prestige, and by violence. So imagine yourself. You're a young disciple. You're following this rabbi Jesus. You come from the Sea of Galilee where you've had a good family that was very faithful. You observe the Torah laws. You know that you're not supposed to interact with Gentiles. You're not supposed to visit places where other gods are worshipped. And you're traveling north, following this rabbi, thinking and wondering where exactly you're going to go next. Perhaps as you go, you kind of realize the direction that you're going, and maybe you think of stories that you've heard of this place. 
stories of the strange worship, the lewd acts of worship that you would have had to do if you worshiped the god Pan. Maybe you've heard stories of the violence that's celebrated in a place like this. Maybe you've heard stories of this emperor worship. This is a man that calls himself the son of the living God on earth and demands that those people around him worship him. This is a man that holds all the power. Your people, your nation is subject to him. Even your kings are subject to this man that calls himself the son of the living God. Rome and Rome's legions would march through your land and take and take and take. As you followed your rabbi north and started to approach this place, you would come to realize that you were approaching the center of the Roman world in your country. This is the place where Jesus decides to bring the disciples, the place where Jesus decides to ask these two questions. And before we move on to those two questions, I think I would like to ask a little question. Is this world much different than the world of a man in a parking lot? Is a world of pagan worship really different than our own, a world in which the gods of our culture sanctify our means of production instead of the people that produce? Is that really different than ours? A world in which we exploit those without power? A world in which power and prestige and violence are the means by which we accomplish great deeds? A world in which one man thinks that the entire world is beholden to him and can send his legions to take and take and take? This is the world that Jesus decides to ask his questions, and I would say that it's probably a whole lot like the world that we live in. And so Jesus brings them here. And the first thing that he asks is, who do people say that I am? What's the public opinion of me? Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the other uh, prophets. These answers are distinctly Jewish. Outside of the world of Jewish affairs, there's not much reason that anyone else would have thought of Jesus at this point. The Roman opinion of Jesus is non-existent. He's just an unheard of rabbi. But these Jewish answers do betray some anticipation, some eagerness, and some hope that the disciples have for this Jesus. John the Baptist and Elijah and Jeremiah, they all have something in common. They all boldly spoke up against unjust authority. John the Baptist against Herod Antipas, Philip's brother. Elijah against Ahaz and Jezebel. Jeremiah against his own kings. These answers speak to the hope that the people have of Jesus that he too will face off against unjust authority, that he'll stand up to Herod, that he'll stand up to Caesar and to Rome. But these answers aren't quite good enough. They hint at the reality of who Jesus is, but they don't really go far enough. The other thing that these people have in common, Jeremiah and John the Baptist and Elijah, is that they were called to be precursors. These people were a foretaste of that which would come. They were forerunners. They were the ones that were called to prepare the way of the Messiah. And so Jesus asks his next question. We know who the world around you says I am, but who do you say that I am? 
What exactly is it that you believe in there? So imagine again that you're one of those early, uneasy disciples, worried about where you are, but suddenly sure of who you followed to get there. With temple and worship and the seat of the power in the background, the disciple Peter looks around at the other disciples, steps forward and says, you are the Messiah. You are the son of the living God. You are the one promised by the prophets. You are not the precursor. You are the one sent, the Christ, the living son of God, and you are here. The legendary Fred Craddock points out that it's a lot easier for us to believe that a Savior is coming rather than believe that a Savior has already come. Craddock says it's easier really to believe that a Messiah will come than to believe that one has already come. You see, there's always enough misery in the world to make the announcement that a Messiah will come believable. But there's also enough misery in the world to make the announcement that the Messiah has come unbelievable. How then do we account for Simon Peter's answer to this question? How then do we account for this confession that Peter makes? If the public opinion of Jesus was you're the forerunner of the Messiah, how are we to account for Peter's faith? Jesus' response to Simon Peter reveals the answer. Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Flesh and blood is not revealed to this to you, but my father in heaven has. Peter can give this answer simply because God revealed it to him. As Paul would later say in his letter to the Corinthians, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. It's by divine revelation that Peter makes this confession. God gives Peter the words, and because Peter's uh, receptive to this revelation, Jesus gives Peter a blessing. You are blessed, son of Jonah. And I tell you, you are Peter. You are Petros. And on this rock, this Petra, I will build my church. The gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Jesus gives Simon a new name. In the biblical narrative, new names usually come with new responsibilities. Abram becomes Abraham, and Sarah be- Sarai becomes Sarah. In the passage that Pastor Chris read to us from Isaiah, Isaiah calls us to remember that it is Abraham and that it is Sarah from which we come. That theirs is the family that we have gained our blessing from. Walter Brueggemann says that theirs is the founding miracle of the, body, of the Bible, that God gave an unending future to a man that was as good as dead and to a woman who had a dead womb. The Hebrew says dead. And that future that God gave to this couple isn't just a future that benefits them. This future that this God gave to this couple is a future that benefits all of the rest of us. And so Jesus situates Peter in this promise, situates Peter in this purpose. Petros, Peter, remember the rock from which you were cut. And I would say that Jesus' own words say that Jesus 
situates the church within this place as well. Church, remember the quarry from which you were hewn. This cave in Caesarea Philippi had a name. The people saw that this cave and this water within the cave had such depth that they were never able to find how deep it goes. It was unending as far as the ancient world was concerned. And deep bodies of water in the ancient world were linked to the underworld. There was a place that they called Hades in Roman and Greek culture. And it's not so much a place like our myths of hell today. Hades is really just simply a place for the dead. This place was called the Gates of Hades. If one were to enter into the gates of Hades, one would not rise again. To die was not to live again. These gates could only be traversed one way. And so Peter's confession of Jesus as of Messiah is only really the first surprising statement that's made in this passage because Jesus also makes his own confession, his own declaration. Jesus says, I will build my church on this rock. The gates of Hades will not prevail against it. If you take Jesus at his word in this passage, the church has a future. The church is inevitable. No matter what the world outside looks like, no matter what our numbers say, the church is here for the future and with the purpose. The gates of Hades, death itself will not prevail against it. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the one that is the son of the living God, the one that descends into Hades and does rise again. This one can traverse the gates of Hades in both directions and bring others with him. And in this church, the church that this Jesus builds, death leads to life. This one, this Messiah, this Christ, then says he gives the keys of the kingdom to you. But we'll talk about that more later. In the name of the God who reveals, and the Jesus who blesses, and the spirit that abides in us all, amen.